First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. And we're just going to read two verses this morning, verse nine and verse ten. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. This is the Word of God. Thinking about this text this week, I did some uh, Google searches uh, about things people have spent ridiculous amounts of money on. And I wonder if there anyone in the room this morning who would uh, pay uh, $560,000 for a pair of Nike Air Jordans. Anyone? $560,000. No one. I'm surprised. Shocked. Well, someone did. Uh, but the reason they did was because this particular pair of Nike Air Jordans was worn in a game by Mr. Jordan himself um, and signed uh, in 1985. I wonder how many of you would pay $20,000 for a smashed tennis racket. A smashed one, not a good one, a smashed one. $20,000. Of course, none of you would, but someone did. Because it was smashed by Serena Williams herself after she lost. I can't imagine what they'd pay if she'd won. $20,000 for a smashed tennis racket after she lost in 2018. Uh, $350,000 for a glove. Uh, that glove did happen to be worn by Mr. Michael Jackson. Uh, and it did have all his glittering crystals sewn in. $350,000 for... A glove. One more. $15,000 for a lock of hair. Is there anyone in the world whose hair you would pay $15,000 to own? Not even if it belonged to Elvis Presley. Well, these items in themselves are not worth what these people paid for them. There is no pair of shoes on the planet, no tennis racket in good condition or bad, no glove, no lock of hair that is worth thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. However, since those things belonged to certain people, there is a demographic <laughs> who is willing to pay dearly for those items. Not for the items themselves, because they're not worth near that much. But they're valuable to whoever paid the money because of who they belong to. When we looked last week at 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter has pointed out that those who rejected, stumbled over, were disobedient to Christ and His Word. He pointed to them in verse 7 and 8. He said, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, this Jesus, this chief cornerstone of our faith, is the stone which the builders rejected. He's the one who has become the chief cornerstone. He is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. 
They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. He's shown us those who have stumbled over Christ, those who do not belong to Christ. Then when we come to verse 9 today, he begins with a very important word in the Bible, and that is, but. But you, he says. They are the ones who have stumbled over Christ. They are the ones who have rejected Him. They are the ones who will be judged. Then he turns to those who receive his letter, these scattered Christians, and says, But you, you're different. You're not the same. The Christians that he, he's writing to are nothing in the world. They're strangers. They're pilgrims. They're exiles. They're worthless in the sight of the world. And the same will be true of us if we are faithful. If we follow Jesus, do as He commands. If we're faithful to His Word and proclaim it, we're worthless in the sight of the world. But what really matters for us, what really matters for Christians, isn't what the world thinks, what kind of value the world puts on us, but what God thinks. What value He puts on us. And let me just say this, though in ourselves we may not carry much value at all, we may even be worthless, because of who we belong to, our value skyrockets. So what really matters isn't what the world thinks about us, but it is what God thinks. So what is God's perspective on His people? What does God Himself think about you if you are a Christian? If you've been born again. He names a few things here. Four, I believe. Number one, He says you are a chosen generation. Now, the word generation that the New King James here uses could be translated as race. I think that's a better word there. The word generation or the word race has to do with people who come from a common ancestor. Now, these Christians were primarily Jewish, and whenever they think about themselves as a race, they may have been tempted to think about that common ancestor they have in Abraham, the one whom God called to follow Him, to whom He would give a land, and they would be His own people. They were His chosen, they were God's chosen race, God's chosen generation. There was distinction between them and the rest of the world. But for the Christian, Scripture is clear that there is no more distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There is no more distinction between slave and free. There's no more distinction between rich and poor. There is nothing that separates those who have been born again from having fellowship with God by the same Spirit. Any place in the world you go to, you find Christians who love God and His Word, and you can have fellowship. You don't even have to speak the same language. But you have the same spirit. Those walls have been torn down, as Jimmy read at the beginning of the service. Our common ancestor isn't some mere human being like the Jews looked to Abraham, but our common ancestor is Jesus Christ. Our common ancestor is Christ Himself. Through the new birth, we are all blood-related. 
We're of the same family. We're of the same generation, the same race through the blood of Jesus. Through the new birth, we have been born again into a new family. So regardless of our country of origin, regardless of our primary language, the the color of our skin, none of that really matters to Christians because through Jesus, we are all one race. Christians. That is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. Not ethnic identity, but our identity in Jesus. That's who we are. But he uses an adjective there. He says we are a chosen generation. Now Peter's talked about being chosen a few times already. And that's how he describes our generation, our race. It's how Israel was known to God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says this, he says, For you, to, the, to Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now listen, the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's the relationship that Israel had with God. Was there anything impressive about the nation itself? No. They weren't the largest. They weren't the strongest. They weren't the wealthiest. If God were to choose a nation based on merit, He certainly would not have chosen Israel. But He chose them. Why? Because He loved them. Because He made an oath to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. But now, as Peter points out, God's affection is not set only on the nation of Israel, but on His church. On those whom He has chosen. And guess what? His basis for choosing you is no better than His basis for choosing Israel. He said, Paul said in Romans 9, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of Him who wills, nor of Him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You see, Israel had nothing to offer God. They weren't an impressive people. Yet God chose to love them simply because He's God. The same is true of you. In yourself, you really have nothing to offer God. It doesn't matter what you own on this earth, what kind of gifts or talents you have, compared to your sin and to the righteousness of God, you have nothing to offer Him. Israel wasn't a great nation. They had nothing to offer God, but God chose to love them. He chose to choose them. You have absolutely nothing to offer God. You are nothing great. You were going to be born a filthy, rotten sinner, just like me and the rest of mankind. But God chose to set His affection on you. To love you. To make you part of His special 
race, the people of God. If you belong to God, you are a chosen generation, a chosen race. Second, he says, you're a royal priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, people only had access to God through priests. And we've been in church our whole lives, most of us, and we just can't think of any kind of world where a person can't stop wherever they are and pray to God. But there are those religions still in the world today where you go to a priest, you go to a mediator, someone who you can talk to and then they can talk to God for you. And in the Old Testament, Israel had to come to the priest. The priesthood was restricted to one family in one tribe in one nation. Had to be of Israel, had to be of the tribe of Levi, had to be of the family, the house of Aaron. And if you weren't a descendant of Aaron... Tough luck. You can't be a priest. The priests themselves had to be pure. They had to be clean. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of others. They weren't perfect priests by any means. And quite honestly, I would have a hard time trusting another man to go to God in my behalf because I know how sinful men are. I am one. But they had to clean themselves before they could go to God for others. But they were mediators between God and man, though they themselves were sinful men. People had to travel to Jerusalem at certain times of the year and bring certain sacrifices to God. And, and then they couldn't even go to God personally with their offering. The high priest alone was allowed to go behind the veil in the temple into the presence of God. Access to God was restricted to the priesthood. But what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Matthew 27 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That which once separated man from the presence of God, where only a select few could enter in, now has been torn wide open. The veil that once separated the people from the presence of God was torn, signifying that there is no longer a barrier between God and man. There is nothing which separates a man who comes to God in faith and repentance from coming to God. The Old Testament priesthood is no longer needed. If you like church history like I do, Martin Luther came to this realization. He was, a, he was a monk, he was a priest, and he realized that preaching what he was preaching, he was putting himself out of a job. They didn't need him anymore. People could go to God on their own. No more do we need another mediator to go to God in our behalf. Now, through Jesus, all have access to God. As Christians, we are now all priests who can approach God personally and at any time. 
You don't have to go to a certain city. You don't have to go to a certain building. You don't have to bring a certain sacrifice. You don't have to be part of a certain family. If you belong to God, if you are of the people of God, if you are a Christian, you are a priest for yourself that can go to God. With As we are united with Jesus Christ, He is our royal high priest, and we serve under Him as His royal priesthood. Now, why does He say royal priesthood? That doesn't mesh with Old Testament language. The word means royal or kingly. You are a kingly priesthood. The kings of the Old Testament were not allowed to be priests. In fact, they were forbidden from being priests. Just ask Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He reigned for a long time. He honored God and the nation thrived. But there came a point later in his life where he said, I want to go offer to God on my own. He decided he was going to do the job of the priest for himself. He went into the temple and what happened to him? He was struck with leprosy. And he died alone. Because the kings were not allowed to be priests, only those of the house of Aaron could come before God. But we are called a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. A couple of reasons. One, because we serve the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. He is our ruler. He has dominion over all creation. And as His priests, we are kingly priests. We work for the King. And that in itself is wonderful. To work for and work under the one who has dominion. But that's not all. We're called a royal priesthood because we ourselves will exercise dominion in the kingdom. Here's the song that we're going to be singing. Revelation 5 records this. says, They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Amen. Not only do we work for the king, not only do we serve under our king and our high priest, Jesus Christ, but we ourselves in his kingdom are kings and priests who ourselves have been given dominion. We who belong to God are a chosen race, a chosen generation, and we are in God's sight a royal priesthood. Third, he says you are a Holy nation. A holy nation. Now Peter keeps using this language that was once applied to Israel. A holy nation is what Israel was supposed to be. In fact, it's what they promised they would be. Exodus 19, Moses went up to God, the Lord, and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, tell this to the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Listen, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you are to speak to the children of Israel. Sounds familiar. Verse 7, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. And you know what Israel said? All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken... We will do. So Moses brought back the words to the people, or brought back the words of the people to the Lord. God says, You're going to be my holy nation. I've set you aside. You've seen what I did to Egypt. You saw how I brought you out. If you'll hear my voice, if you'll obey me, you'll be my special people, my holy nation. And Israel, so boldly, with so much confidence, says, Whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. And what are they doing just a few days later? Making a golden calf. You're the God that's delivered us from the Egyptians. Really? They were to be God's holy nation. That's what they promised they would be. But they failed. They repeatedly failed. The Old Testament is just one story after another. How Israel says they're going to follow God, and then they fail God, and then God saves them. And then they promise they're going to follow God, and then they fail God, and then God saves them. It's a cycle over and over and over again. But their ultimate failure was when they rejected and crucified Jesus Christ. When they killed their Messiah, the promised one, the one they said they were looking for. They put to death the very Son of God. Now, Peter says of Christians, you are a holy nation. You are a holy nation. Present tense. How can he say that? How can he say that of all the Christians in these scattered churches? How can he say that of all Christians throughout church history? How can he say that of all the Christians in the world today? How can he say that of me and you? That you are a holy nation. I am not at every moment of my life holy. <laughs> And in case you wonder about yourself, I'll just go ahead and tell you, you aren't either. How can he say, how can we come to the Scriptures at any time and look to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read these words, You are a holy nation. Because the holiness, the righteousness... Of Jesus Christ Himself has been imputed, accounted to everyone who has put their faith in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 5, therefore as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. 
Even so through one man's righteous act, that's Jesus on the cross, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. You know why you can say, I am righteous in God's sight? You know why you can say at any moment, I am holy? Because you have been made holy by Jesus Himself. His righteousness has been credited to your account. Positionally, in God's sight, I am holy. You, if you are a Christian, are holy. Not because of your own merits. Not because of anything that you have done or anything that you offer God. But because Jesus Himself is holy and He has given you His own holiness. Your righteousness, your holiness is not your own. It was a gift from Christ Himself. Now when God looks at me, when He looks at you as a Christian, He doesn't see me for my sin, my failures, all the things that are nasty about me. He looks at me and He looks at you as a Christian and sees the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of His own Son. You are as righteous as Jesus is in God's sight. The church is a holy nation because we have been made holy by Christ through faith in Him. We've truly been given Christ's righteousness. And when we realize what we have been given and what our stance is before God, when we realize our position as a righteous and holy son and daughter of God, that is, when we're truly born again, that holiness will progressively purify us and change the very way we live. See, we say, we say that we're a holy nation and we rest in that because of Jesus. But if you truly have been made holy in the sight of God, your life will begin to produce holiness practically, progressively. As you go on, there, is, there will be fruit. There is evidence for those who are holy. We who belong to God are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood and we are a holy nation. And then he says one more thing. He says his own special people. His own special people. The word special that's used here means a personal possession. A private possession. The old King James uses the word peculiar. You're to be a peculiar people. And I remember hearing some preachers say that when I was a kid. And they say, well, that means you ought to be weird. You ought to be different. Peculiar. Uh, that's not exactly what it means. The old King James translators used the word peculiar because the Latin word that it came from meant flock. Like a flock of sheep that is owned. It is the possession of the shepherd. You are God's own personal, private, precious possession. You belong to Him. Ephesians 1 says that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. 
When Paul was giving instructions to the Ephesians, Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said to them, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. He said to Titus that we're looking, ahead, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. The Scriptures say you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. Do you know why you are so valuable? Do you know why you have any value at all? Why you are such a precious possession to God? It's because of the price that He paid to purchase you. He bought us with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, we are His precious possession. Whatever the world sees when they see Christians, this is what God sees. Whatever the world sees when they see people who are standing against the norms, when uh, they're saying things that disagree with the, the, the global narrative, when they see people who are standing on the truths of God's Word, whatever they see in us, that really doesn't matter because this is what God sees. He sees a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people. What's God's perspective on His people? This is it. How does God see you if you're a Christian? This is it. But He has a purpose for that. It's not for nothing. What should knowing how God sees you motivate you to do? He says there in the middle of verse 9, He says that that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who, were, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The word proclaim there means to tell out, to tell forth. You're sending out a message. And what is it that you're proclaiming? Here he says, proclaim the praises of Him. What is it to proclaim God's praises? The word speaks of excellence of character. It can speak of the character of God. One Greek scholar pointed out that the word is used to note the ability to do heroic deeds. What do you want to proclaim about God? Well, one thing is His ability to do heroic deeds. Joel loves superheroes. He could watch cartoons and hear about them all day, every day, and it never get old. He can pretend. He can play. He likes to talk about the great things that they can do. How much more should God's children be able to proclaim the heroic, the magnificent deeds that God has done in saving sinners? We are to proclaim the manifestation of God's power, His mighty and glorious work in saving sinners. He says that you may do it, uh, He may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
You were once in darkness. You were dead in sin. You had no hope in the world. You had no direction for your life or what was going to happen after you died. But God shed His light on you. He opened your eyes and you've been brought from darkness to light. But He also says, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. You once were a nobody. Sorry. No significance. Maybe in the world, but in the grand scheme of eternity, you were a nobody. A speck on the timeline of humanity. But now, you who once were a nobody have been brought into the family of God. And he says, you are the very people of God. He called you from insignificance to being his own. And then he says, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Mercy. He called you from judgment to mercy. You stood condemned in your sin and under the law of God. You had no hope. You were doomed to an eternity without God in torment. And He showed you mercy. He poured out His grace. Those are things that are worthy of proclaiming. That we may proclaim the praises of Him. The excellencies of Him. God sees you as His precious possession. And that should lead you to proclaim His praises. You are God's precious possession. Now proclaim His praises. You're His precious possession. Now proclaim His praises. Proclaim them directly to God through worship and prayer. When you go to the Lord each day in prayer, and when you come to His Word, and when you gather with the church on Sunday, tell God how great He is. That's worship. Ascribing to God the worth that is His. When you pray, declare His worth. You are God's precious possession. Proclaim His praises. Proclaim it to unbelievers. Through evangelism. You know somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Tell them. His heroic deeds. Tell them how He saved you. How He bought you with His precious blood. And that He offers the same to them. You are God's precious possession. Now proclaim His praises. Do it to other Christians through discipleship. Tell other Christians what God has done for you, what He's taught you in His Word, how He's carried you through whatever circumstance. Encourage other believers. We need that. We need one another. These terms that He's using, He's talking about a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. These are plural terms. It is not individual Christianity. You're part of a church. Proclaim the praises of God to each other. Declare His heroic deeds, His mighty acts. You are God's precious possession. Now, proclaim His praises. That's what God has called you to do. Who you are ought to motivate you to do these things. Let me... Ask one final question, and that's simply this. Does this apply to you at all? Is this how God sees you? 
Are you a Christian? Not if you've prayed the sinner's prayer and been baptized and made the member of a, made the member of a church. I'm asking you if you've been born again. Because if you have, when you hear all these things that, that God thinks about you, that's going to resonate with you. The Spirit bears witness with yours that you are His child. That you have this standing before Him. It's going to spill out into the way you live your life. It's going to bear fruit. It's going to produce holiness. But if not, this really means nothing. It's just a sermon. It's just something that you've come to church and you've listened to and you're going to leave and go have lunch and forget about it. So I ask you, does this apply to you personally? Are you a part of God's chosen race? His royal priesthood? His holy nation. Are you one of His own special people? Is it changing the way you live? Because if not, you can come to Him for mercy. And He gives it freely. Whoever comes to Me, He says, I will never cast out. Put your trust in Jesus. Would you stand as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. For the truths it contains. And for the change that it produces in our lives. God, you know our hearts. You know where we stand with you. So God, show us where we stand with you. For those here who are your people, Lord, show them clearly that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your own special people, God. And may they proclaim your praises. And Lord, for those who are not yet part of your people, show them clearly their need to repent and trust in Christ. And may they do it today. In Jesus' name, amen.